Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is a Broadway singer, dancer, actress, performer, p- extraordinaire. You have seen her in Sunset Boulevard or Tootsie or Beautiful or even Company, which, you know, I guess is sort of relevant today. Please welcome to the pod, Miss Brittany Coleman. Hello, Brittany. Hi, how's it going? Going great. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're catching you in Sarasota, correct? Yes. Wonderful. You were playing Guinevere in a virtual production of Camelot. Is that what I understand? No, this is actually in person. Oh, in person. Yeah, we are one of four regional productions happening in the country right now. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> the, does the Do you walk around with that importance on your shoulders kind of going like, yeah, I'm one of the four. Go me. Well, yeah, it, there's a weight to it. Like we're doing it concert version style. Mm-hmm. So we're doing the, the, it's a truncated script, but it's a script. Um, but we always have to be six feet apart. Mm. Uh, it's, it's interesting. You know what I mean? Like a love story where the lovers can't touch or kiss. So we're trying to get real creative. Well, I mean, that is- kind of works for Camelot in a way where you're apart yeah. from each other. I do love that it's a truncated script because much as I love that score, that girl is four hours long. Oh, it's so long. Jeez. It's so long and tedious. This is actually the third time I've done this revised script, uh, which I love because it just focuses on, you know, the Arthur, Jenny, Lance, love triangle there's no merlin there's no pelinor there's no nimue there are no like large dance sequences it's kind of hilarious <laughs> that's good i i appreciate yeah. i i mean i like um morgan lefay as a character but i do understand that like sh- not super important <laughs> you know no but the music is glorious it is uh, oh the yeah, simple dress really of maidenhood it. is such a wonderful entrance song i love that song so much so i brought it up Literally five seconds ago. But Brittany, what Sondheim musical are we talking about today? We're talking about Company today. Yes, we are. And as I said, uh, you have a little bit of experience with, with this one, yes? Uh, I do. Yeah, this is my first time doing Company, but I am part of the um, Broadway company of Company. Yes, you are. You are the, our first <laughs> guest. Not our, not, not our last guest in this series, but our first guest to have uh, firsthand performing uh, experience with a Sondheim show, specifically uh, Broadway. So it's very exciting. You mm. you marked the beginning of this chapter in the series. So congratulations. Very exciting. Great. 
Um, what was your knowledge of company or, uh, or your experience with it before coming to do the show? Uh, let me see. Well, I knew, like, I would listen to the, um, the cast album a lot as a kid mm-hmm. growing up. Cause actually my first show really ever, like in high school, when I was really deciding to do this was into the woods. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, well, what else has this guy written? And it's a lot. <laughs> and then um, my high school, I don't know how many like high schoolers you have listening to your podcast, but we used to compete. Weirdly a few, I, I, I will say. Yeah. yeah, I'm surprised. Right? <laughs> Hi, I y'all. love it. I love it, but I'm surprised. <laughs> so when I was in high school, my theater group, I guess, um, would compete with other high schools. I grew up in Michigan. Um, and we do this like state competition thing. And uh, God, one year we were there with dancing at Lunasa, but like the, the big rival high school did a 45 minute company. You did, you wait, high school. wait, the other school did a 45 minute company and you guys did dancing at Lunasa? Yeah. Where did you go to high school? Like Ann Arbor, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we sure did. We sure did. <laughs> I love this. Uh, when I was in my high school like this, uh, we did the goddamn children's hour. Like, uh. Oh, no. I mean, like, yeah, we got uh, pretty deep. I mean, like, children's hour is fine, but it's from the 50s. Like, come on. I want to do other things. Right. Everybody did Our Town, you know? Everyone did Our Town. Like, no. <laughs> we, we did do the Laramie Project my freshman year. That was nice. But nice. I but I was like that asshole freshman was like, oh, we're doing Laramie Project. Why not Angels in America? Um, and, everyone, right? yeah, and everyone's like, can't we just have nice things? <laughs> I love it. Why can't we just stop and breathe for a second? Yeah. I love it. Um, oh man, but this, this 45 minute version of company, I was like, okay, these are very mature themes for high schoolers. Um, I don't understand what's going on. These concepts are very lofty, but I love this music. Mm. what's happening so that was like my first taste of um company and they what god they did very well I think we were all in the the top three at the end of that (laughs) competition (laughs) well well good they 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 can stay uh so that was your exposure then it sort of stayed with you throughout the rest of your oh yeah I would think the next big kind of iteration was um I think I was in college when the um revival with Alice Barza mm-hmm. up and running, or maybe it was just at the end of high school. I can't remember when, but I remember us watching the bootleg mm. in college. Yeah. You don't have to, you, yeah. you don't have to, triangle. Yeah. you don't have to date yourself, but it was 07, I believe. So yeah, it was, it, it, the, it opened, I think end of 06 and then it won the revival Tony in 07. Perfect. So yeah, I was right. Yes, you're right. That's that's what I'm good for. I'm good at those things of like, oh yes, it won the Tony on this year and such and such and such and such. So don't worry if you have if you have if you're ever doubting yourself, I'm here to just tell you. Uh, I'm gonna go into a little bit of the history of how we got here, how we got the company that we know we love and some people don't know and love. Mm. Uh, and you, if there's any tidbits that you learned in your time rehearsing it with uh, Miss Marianne Elliott or meeting with Mr. Sondheim or whatnot, Mm -hmm. by all means, jump right in. Uh, I'll try to barrel through as much of this as I can. So Company uh, came about from a series of one-act plays written by George Firth, who was sort of like an out-of-work actor friend of Stephen Sondheim's. It was about 10 or 11 one-act plays 
dealing with various things. Some of them dealt with marriage, but the whole concept was that they were supposed to star Kim Stanley, who was a very prominent uh, stage actress at the time. She originated the lead role in Bus Stop. She's She was in a bunch of movies, but it was supposed to all be one act where she was in every scene. And funding kind of fell through and George Firth gave the script to Sondheim. He's like, anything you uh, I can do with this, like, do you know who I can maybe get this to, to raise money. And Sondheim gives it to Hal Prince, who, you know, very big producer, director, they'd worked together on Forum and West Side Story. And Prince had become, gotten into his own as a director at this point. He had just done, uh, not just done, but he had done Cabaret and She Loves Me. And he reads the scripts and he's like, you know, I'm reading all these scenes and all I'm thinking is like Kim Stanley in between each scene, going backstage, changing her wig, changing her costume. Like, that's all I'm thinking about. He's like, but you got three scenes here about marriage. I really want to do a musical about marriage. So I think this could be a musical. And he's like, and he brings Firth and Sondheim in. And he's like, Sondheim, Stevie, Stevie, baby, Stevie, honey, Stevie, Bobby, baby. He goes, I think you should write the score. And at the same time, Sondheim's been working on a musical called The Girls Upstairs with James Goldman, which will eventually become Follies. This is the musical he's writing after uh, Do I Hear a Waltz? So I don't know how much you know about Sondheim in the 60s, but the 60s was not a great decade for him, emotionally speaking. He had one really big hit with Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum and all the critics were like, the show's great, the this, this score's terrible. And then he does Anyone Can Whistle where a lot of people are like, oh, the score's really good, but the show's terrible and it runs for like a week. And mm-hmm. so he's kind of like, and then he writes the lyrics for Do I Hear a Waltz with Richard Rogers, who's a notorious homophobe. And he resented that he was working on a show with a bunch of gays. And so sometimes like that wasn't a pleasant experience at all. So he's kind of like in a mishmash and he's got five years until the, his next work comes to Broadway. So he's working on The Girls Upstairs. That's kind of going through a lot of uh, turmoil. He and James Goldman write Evening Primrose for a ABC series called Stage 67. That's sort of like the only new Sondheim score we get in these five years. And it's four songs and it's four television. So, mm-hmm. you know, not what we usually think of when we think of a new Sondheim score, quote unquote. And Prince, so what's was basically what was supposed to happen was the girls upstairs was gonna come to Broadway in 1970 and Follies was gonna come, uh, the company was gonna come at the end of the season. But the girls upstairs, I don't know how familiar you are with Follies. It already, like, its finished product is pretty, like, what's happening in this show? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And the girls, and I love it, but the the girls upstairs was, like, that times 10. Because there was, like, a murder mystery mm-hmm. and, like, a who's going to kill somebody and, like, all this stuff. And everybody just kept on being, like, what am I supposed to do with this show? So it just kept on going through turnaround with the producers and directors. And finally it looked like it was going to stick. And then just completely doesn't happen uh and so sometimes like really upset and he's like oh 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 fun fact also uh on top of all this there was possibly a musical he was going to contribute lyrics for uh that was going to have music by leonard bernstein directed by jerome robbins uh, a book by john guar and starring zero mastel uh but it it was going to be like a brecht play like they were adapting a brecht play to a musical and sometimes like we were working on it and then I forgot, I don't like Brecht. So we, <laughs> we kind of stopped it. But part of me is like, I want to know what that musical was. Cause that's like, that's just so many great people in the room. I want to see that show. Yeah, it's, me too. Yeah. It's what could have been. Oh, well, but I mean, if Sondheim wasn't really into Brecht, I doubt that like his work was going to be all that good. Cause anytime he's like, right. I don't really, anytime he's like, I don't really want to do this. You can sort of tell in the work. You're like, oh yeah, you didn't, you didn't enjoy this. That's so true. You just got to trust him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so basically, Girls Upstairs is about to get produced. It falls through. And Hal Prince is 
I think he's like in Greece somewhere working on a movie and Sandan calls him. He's like, I can't work on company. I need to get girls upstairs up and running. And Prince is like, I have a set being built. I have every, every on. he's like, I'm literally casting it now. You have to write the score, Steve. Like we have a script. You have to write the score. He's like, how about this? If I promise to produce and direct girls upstairs, which will become follies, will you write company? He's like, and we'll do girls upstairs after company. And Sondheim's like, yes, absolutely. Amazing. Which gets him excited. He's like, great. Now I'll start writing company. So they get to work on it. He actually writes it pretty quickly, concerning the fact it took like six years for Follies to become a thing. He basically writes company mm-hmm. in less than a year, which is insane. Um, mm-hmm. This is something where he talked about how the content sort of dictated the form. And we'll get more into that mm-hmm. as we talk about the show. But originally, Anthony Perkins, who most people remember as Norman Bates from Psycho, was going to star in it. And he was like, I really, he pulled a full strides and he's like, but I really want to do is direct. So he goes and directs some off-Broadway play. I'm like, fine, we'll find somebody else. They get Dean Jones, who I'm, I don't know if you know Dean Jones, anything more than his parting company, but most, <laughs> a lot of people now are like, what? He was a famous person before the show. He was like, he made a name for himself, like basically playing the dad in a lot of live action Disney films. He was like a mm-hmm. more, he was a more boring Dennis Quaid. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he agrees to do this and they cast the rest of the show. They write the part of Joanne for Elaine Stritch. They're kind yeah. of going, yes, they're going sort of uh, through all these creative differences and processes and cutting songs, moving things around. Uh, Michael Bennett is brought on to choreograph. And the only reason they get Bennett to choreograph is they're like, what if we gave Donna McKechnie a part? Will you choreograph the show? And he's like, (laughs) great. He's like, how I can't choreograph for a bunch of like singing actors who don't dance. I need somebody. (laughs) Fine. We'll give you Donna McKechnie. Will you choreograph the show? Right. It's not only just like a part, it's like a, a major dance future <laughs> yeah well and they made the part of major dance future because they're like well we got donna mckechnie like you talk- yeah it's yeah, like yeah, you- yeah let's write in like a minute or two worth of just dance break <laughs> it's like to put donna mckechnie in a musical and not have her dance is like to cast audra mcdonald in the drowsy chaperone but she's <laughs> the man in chair like yes audra's an amazing actress but like i need her to sing yep absolutely <laughs> two things that i really love about the rehearsal process of company from my research one is that it took them the whole first day of rehearsal just to learn the first page of the opening because a lot of these people were not like singer singers they were really actors who could sing and didn't have a lot of musical training so they're like the first day was just on all the bobby babies and not even all the bobby babies just the first page of bobby babies um and then it took a lot of time for them to drill that the other one that i really like is they're rehearsing side by side and it's that's number was very much uh, in flux because Bennett didn't really Bennett didn't really know a way into it. He's like, these guys don't really dance. How do I make this like a showstopper? And eventually he realized, oh, I'll make it so that way they're, you know, they're like parents at the PTA putting on a show. So it's like cutesy and and like kind of uh, uh, crusty, but, you know, it's still fun. But for a while he was like trying to make it a showstopper and he's like drilling the number into them. And he's like, stop it, stop it. This is what I want you to do. And he does the whole number full out. And everyone's like, wow, that's amazing. And Elaine Stritch raises her hand. She's like, Michael, that was lovely. But um, you only had to do that once. We have to do this eight times a week. And like, we're all over 40. And she's like, she's like you're going to go off and do your next show. We're stuck with this eight times a week. If we do that every night, I'm like, we're going to die. So you have to figure out another way to either choreograph the number or we have to figure out a way to make it look like we're doing what you just did, but not actually go full out. Um, which I love it. I love 
I, that woman stood her ground and I love it so much. So they go to Boston. Reviews are super divisive. Variety uh, famously says that these songs for the most part are undistinguished, which it's like when I was reading reviews on the original Annie where they said that the score is um, unmemorable. And I was like, say what you will about tomorrow. You do not walk out of that theater not humming tomorrow. You right. know, it's just, it's mm-hmm. like unmemorable it's like almost memorable in like the worst kind of way where it's just stuck in there forever. So to say like yeah. that the songs are undistinguished, I'm like, how do you listen to the ladies who lunch and say that it's undistinguished? It's so specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it says, mm-hmm. at, Variety says of the out of town Boston tryout, as it stands now, it's for ladies matinees, homos and misogynists. He felt that the book hated women, which I can understand based off of the original kind of production, which was very cold and, I think to be fair, everyone kind of comes off looking uh, off in company. So I I think to say misogynist is unfair to how much it also doesn't like the men. Uh, It just does comedy to sort of things. Everyone's weird. Um, Yeah. It goes both ways for sure. Yeah. I was, I had, um, do you know Patrick Sulkin by any chance? I don't. Okay. He's a, he's a music director. He uh, worked on Pretty Woman and was just working on Little Shop. I had him come on on Forum and we talked about sort of like the, you know, not great gender politics of Forum. And we basically were like, to be fair, nobody in Forum comes out looking good. So like, while yes, the women are like one very specific thing, like all the men are also treated as idiots. So like, it's not as if there's like the women are treated in such a negative light and men are like, look how amazing we are. It's like everyone is, is awful. So you can, you can, we can rightfully be like, this isn't great, but also look at the bigger picture. No one's great. Totally. Yeah. I would say even in terms of like a main character, a lot of people walk away going, I don't, I don't like Bobby. Ugh. Yeah. And I do <laughs> want to get into that for two hours. Yeah. I want to get into that. Um, as soon as we, once we, once we get to opening night. So what I'm going to do, usually yeah. what I used to do is I would sort of go like song by song, beat by beat um, with the shows story-wise. Starting with kind of company onwards, I'm not really going to do that because Sondheim shows at this point become infamously not very plot heavy. They're much more about themes and characters and moments and emotions. Yeah. Um, sometimes not emotions, but you yeah. know, this story does not really always happen. Uh, so it goes to uh, Boston. They make a bunch of changes. Uh, I'll get into some of those changes as we sort of go through some of the songs. Opens on Broadway uh, in 1970. I have the exact date here, huh? Um, it opens. Calm down. Calm down. I'm going to tell you right here, right now. Stop yelling at me, Brittany. It's coming. <laughs> I have it. I have it. You have got it. this. Rooting for you. Thank you. Oh, my God. I'm. <laughs> here we go. April 26, 1970. I did it. I found it. There you go. Nice. <laughs> Brittany was just sitting there like a very patient person going, he'll get there eventually. <laughs> um, so you let, let's sort of talk about the show. Uh, when you guys started rehearsal, what was sort of the first thing that Marianne Elliott, the director, kind of talked to you about in terms of the themes of the show, the way into the story, uh, characters like that? Uh, yeah, for our first big meet and greet. I mean, our version of this was, um, kind of this carryover from the West End production that they had done the year before uh, that Patty was a part of, but everybody else was recast. Yes. And um, uh, talked about kind of this overarching theme of what it means, especially with the gender swap, what it means for a woman to be 35 and unmarried without kids. And um, 
I can't actually, I can't say that much about it, to be honest. <laughs> we haven't technically opened yet, but there sure. is like, there's a theme that you will hear throughout, especially with the interstitial like theme changes and stuff. That is a very constant reminder that this is a woman and she is turning 35. What does that mean? Mm. Uh, and it's, uh, Bobby, I'll say Katrina, they are interchangeable. Um, uh, she's on stage for most of all of the scene transitions. So you get to, to see her um, react to those reminders. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would say that that's really the big overarching theme because then that affects how all of the characters treat their reminders to her specifically. Um, and now we have boyfriends instead of girlfriends and yeah. Um, and kind of what those relationships are. I don't think they're, they're terribly different with the, the gender swaps, but, um, you know, each kind of visit with each boyfriend is, is treated with, um, a lot of care. It's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I uh, may have seen an unofficial documentation of your production during quarantine back in like May. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say for sure or not but I might've seen it. Uh, and for I was actually, first of all, very surprised at how little of the text was changed from the original because when doing, yeah. research, doing research for this, uh, I read both the original script and the revised script from the 90s because company has gone through mm-hmm. some major changes. And you guys really kind of stuck with the original for the most part. You, you guys added back in, marry me a little and I think the ending yeah. the ending is more similar to how it is in revised scripts which is good because the original ending is sort of like a oh because in the end the ending of the original original script like they do the whole thing of um they're at the apartment he doesn't uh Bobby doesn't show up and then they blow mm-hmm. out the candles and leave and Bobby's like mm-hmm. on the side of the stage looking at them and then looks out to the audience being like we did it and it's like what like it's for all the inactivity that Bobby has already, the original script, you're like, whoa, Bobby really doesn't do anything. <laughs> like, it just yeah. isn't even a yeah, part of his own ending. Totally. It's the trope of, like, having a leading character have all the action happen to them rather than them instigating. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, oh, okay. Uh, a theme that I can talk about is, like, it's, it feels like an Alice in Wonderland nightmare. Got that it. He's lost in. <laughs> yes, we're sort of like each door leads to another like bit of madness. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And she can't control it, and um, you know she has to react to it. She's put in these ridiculous positions. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting. It's like a tidal wave that comes in, and everybody gets swept up in it, especially when there's a lack of like a linear plot. You yeah, know, it's like okay, well, what's behind door number two? Let's see what this is. You know. That kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what game show is that? But like, but that's a specific reference. And I can't. Re- I don't have it in my head right now. What it is? It's like, it's like um, like fam- like almost like Family Feud is like, show me chickens. Um, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> yeah. It's what I appreciate. And again, I can't judge fully because I don't know when this documentation was taken in your preview process. Is also doesn't show everything, so obviously a lot of intricacies are lost. We know this when we see these unofficial documents that this is the case, which totally, is why we don't. Totally. Which is why we don't fully judge we get the impression of it all uh what yeah. i what i could get from it was that you guys made bobby a little more active in her own story which mm-hmm. which is important on a theatrical level because 
something that I talked about with Sondheim in his earlier stuff when he works with Jerome Robbins is like he and Jerome Robbins often clashed uh, on artistic sensibilities because Sondheim is very big on like what's realistic and Jerome Robbins is like what does the audience need so mm-hmm. and that's something that Sondheim always says like oh well I learned this from Jerry about you know the theatrical sensibilities and rather than just being logical and sometimes I look at his shows and I go there are times when you kind of either forget about that Steve or like you remember it and you go no I'm not gonna do that yeah um, yeah, totally, totally. And I, I don't want to talk about it too much because that episode will be coming out eventually, but in shows like Pacific Overtures or even Anyone Can Whistle, there's definitely kind of a moment where he's like, yeah, no, fuck the audience. Like, I'm going to do what I do. And there's sort of a great uh, courage to that. But sometimes, and we talk, and it's with company, it's the same thing because uh, there's this very specific thing that changed in company out of town to Broadway that he still is not thrilled about. And I'm kind of... I'm not one to tell Sondheim he's wrong, but I already said he was wrong about I Feel Pretty. So I'm going to tell him he's wrong about being alive. Being alive absolutely <laughs> works. It absolutely fits. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're going to go mishmashy. But Company yeah. is interesting to me as I'm reading the, all the different scripts and I'm listening to the songs. Bobby is sort of a character who isn't really anything, not because like, on, on a thematic level, sure, you know, this person has to kind of be the center of all the crazy that happens around them. But what I kind of realized about Bobby is like, he and she, they uh, act in sort of this kind of blank slate to everybody to be liked by everybody, to kind of fit in everywhere. Bobby always sort of has one foot in every sort of situation, never is fully invested in everything. And that's right. sort of reflected in the writing and how like every scene that Bobby's in, Bobby is always just sort of um, whatever those characters need in that moment. And Mm -hmm. so like, so you can understand why Bobby would be friends with like Joanne as well as Sarah and Jenny and Susan, as well as all their husbands and, and be dating three very different women or three very different men because Bobby is so, so wants to be liked by everyone, but not maybe not necessarily loved by everyone because love is a much bigger commitment and requires much more of you. And the problem with that is you don't make a lasting impression with people when you're just always wanting to be liked, but maybe not always loved. And you're not also like really showing your true colors or finding any definition for yourself. I say this as someone who, uh, in high school, I, so I came out very young. I came out at, at 14 and which in 2004 was very brave. I know some of you guys come out at nine now and I love you and I see your journeys, but in 2004, 14 was very young. And, you know, I was a shy kid. I had, I had, a you know, I, I have lovely parents. I had a lovely childhood for the most part, but like I was an introspr- introspective kid who wanted to watch the little mermaid more than I ever wanted to watch sports. And I would like reenact the part of your world rock scene all the time in my parents' bathtub. And they're like, what's going on with him. And so as I, as I got older and I sort of learned to kind of hide that stuff in order to avoid conflict with people, I try, you know, kind of sort of skirt through a lot of situations. And then I get to high school where I feel I come out and go, I mean now, and it's all wonderful. But I realized like, once I got to college, all these, what I thought were close friendships in high school didn't last once I got to college, because once there was distance there, people weren't really, really weren't willing to put in the work with me. 
And I realized it's because I was so concerned with being liked still and being nice to everyone that I wasn't making lasting connections. I was making really pleasant connections. And so then I kind of learned, I'm still learning, to be more honest about who I am and what I am about and people who can sort of connect on that. So the friendships I have now are much more, uh, are much stronger. And that's something that I relate to as I'm reading Bobby, especially as I'm getting closer to Bobby in the script's age, which I don't love that fact. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't love that I'm much closer to Bobby than I am to Jack and Into the Woods now. I'm like, oh, wow. Because I don't know if you know this about gay culture, Brittany. Once you leave Jack and go into Bobby, people are going to start calling you daddy. And I am not into that. I do not want that. Not one bit. Well, looking at your, your young, sprightly face on Zoom, you're still a, a Jack to me. <laughs> do we like that? Is that a good thing? <laughs> the fact that you just said, did you like that shows that I'm actually leading into daddy territory because that's what all daddies are asked. Did you like that, daddy? Uh, you're getting such an education. What am I saying? You worked on Sunset Boulevard. You know all this stuff already. Yeah, I'm well-versed. <laughs> oh, honey, no, none of the men in Sunset Boulevard are verse. <laughs> Bam! Oh, I was really proud of that wordplay. Um, <laughs> But you know what I mean in terms of Bobby, in terms of like the connections? Sorry, I, I took Brittany down such a dark road and then dragged her back to company. So she's like still in verse mode. Verse daddy I'm, I'm mode. waiting for the segue, really. There's no, there's no segue. So verse daddies, verse daddies leads us back to company. Uh, but do you know what I mean in terms of like some a person who is so intent on having pleasant exchanges and having everyone like them that they aren't actually ever willing to kind of commit to anything. And thus all these sort of hands in pots or I don't, what's the actual, there's an actual uh, finger. Evita has the term fingers and pies. I don't know like what the actual term is, but you know what I mean? We're like, you're kind of, yeah. you have a little bit in everything, but because you mm -hmm. don't put as much of you as possible into one thing, while you have all these different networks, none of them, they're all very fragile. It's very like social media that way, you know, where it's like you want every, you want this traction, you want the likes, so you don't really put up a true sense of who you are or what your life is. And thus the the connections you have on social media are not necessarily real ones. And I feel mm -hmm. like company mm -hmm. kind of was very prescient in that way in the 70s mm -hmm. because they talked about how with that show originally and it was reflected in the scenic design and the staging and the acting was like how hard it, how much harder it's becoming to be uh personal with people in such a distant world where everything is progressing so quickly and it's so much easier to isolate and thus mm -hmm. relationships are getting harder and i'm like oh honey if you thought it was hard in 1970 wait till you get to 2021 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's it's interesting because it's like uh, thinking about some of the things you just said, like side by side is literally the number where everybody's like, you do so much for us. You take care of all these little things. We can depend on you for anything. We are so happy to have you. And then literally like getting into being alive, they're literally like, wait, who are you? What do you want? What do you want? Yeah. What <laughs> you do know, you want? Be, yeah. Like, pick something. The, and again, like anything. The anything. Want something. Want something. That's my yeah. favorite line. That's my favorite yeah. line. Let's talk some songs because this is a Sondheim series and I want to talk about some songs. The mm -hmm. opening the opening number, it took the original company probably about five months to learn. How long did it take you guys to learn the opening number? 
see, God, three or four days at least. Jeez. And and that's with a bunch of theater nerds who probably kind of knew the song to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure Chris Sieber is like, "Um, excuse you, I've been listening to the song since 1970. I absolutely know it. And then your music director is like, sit down, Chris, you don't know it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You think you know it. And then you're like, oh fuck um right because it's like you know everybody has their own individual lines and it's all really exposed so often it's just building up the courage to come in at the right place yeah (laughs) that's really what it is well it's sort of yeah it's like um Sondheim always says that with the original company he was really proud that sort of the opening tones were a busy signal because he thought that was sort of the whole theme of the show in one uh audible moment Mm -hmm. and I think that all of the Bobby babies, Bobby boobies and whatnot is really kind of a great um, extension of that because Mm -hmm. it is sort of this, I guess the best way to call it is like organized chaos because it is overwhelming, but it always makes sense. Like it's very listenable still. It's not, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know the best way to describe it. It's not like a, uh, like say a city on fire where you're like, oh my God, like how does anyone find their parts here? It still all fits, but it is, Mm -hmm. but it is, it gives the impression of, of just sort of overwhelming voice memos and voicemails and and texts and whatnot and mm-hmm. yeah um, and then they all come in on unison together which is you know a relief to the rest of our ears those good and crazy people my friends those good and crazy people my married friends and that's what it's all about isn't it that's what it's really about really about I just I think everybody is so interesting in the show because everybody has like a one very defining trait which some people could say is simplistic but I think that's kind of true of all of us when like you boil it down to like as you said like when people ask Bobby like who are you what do you want like Mm -hmm. it it's so hard people say oh it's not as simple as that I think what makes it so hard is that it is so simple and we all have difficulties like really boiling ourselves down to like our utmost truth and mm-hmm. I think company does do that with all of its characters but it doesn't in a cynical way that a lot of audiences get turned off by I think that's sort of why they're like I don't like that it's so simplistic it's like you don't like it's so simplistic because the attitude is kind of like here's Amy or uh or Jamie and like is very very neurotic but because uh we're treating it in kind of like a joking manner it turns a lot of people off rather than like hey here's somebody who has like real anxiety about this kind of push forward as an adult uh Mm -hmm. although it is a it is a very funny scene she she the orange juice is hot yes oh it's great i mean also part of it is that like a lot of this depends on the production but it's um you know you can see this from bobby's point of view someone like bobby has to compartmentalize people like that so often those singular traits are how you know they are defined in his or her their mind Um, yeah yeah it's interesting yeah and sort of like how bobby then has to act around each person's like okay here's so and so in my uh i was gonna say file effects in my like rolodex this person uh here's susan who is like this thus i will be more like this to be with susan yeah Um, yeah did you ever watch the americans actually it's, I know I mean, folks, but it's it's yeah. good it's good I'm in, I'm towards the end of it now but it is sort of because the whole thing is that they are you no know, they're spies and they have to put on all these different personas all the time mm-hmm. and it's when they talk about like how they act with people as different people 
they they do kind of have to pinpoint very specific details about the person they're talking to. Like, this is the person who does this and this and this. And thus, I am like this. And mm-hmm. Bobby mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, listen, if Carrie Russell sang, and I think she does sing a little bit, like, she would have been a good Bobby. She could, <laughs> if her work on The Americans taught me anything. I've also now uh-huh. had this running gag on on this series which wasn't intentional but it just keeps happening is finding the most random pop culture things to connect the show to um, so oh like, okay i don't think anyone ever thought that company would be like the americans but here we are <laughs> amazing i found it uh yeah that's all i really got to say about it i also love i mean i love bobby's verse uh you know it's all about company that's what it's really about you know those great mm-hmm. people that i love and do you think that bobby means it when Bobby sings the the whole bridge and company. Do you think it's sort of like a uh, a mantra that Bobby says to his and herself to kind of like? I think the the beautiful part of the show is that it just asks so many questions and it's really up to interpretation. Sure. <laughs> um, I God, I guess I've seen it a couple of different ways, but no, I don't think. Well, no, I think it goes actually both ways. I think you know uh, having company is essential and necessary to keep yourself from going absolutely crazy. But um, it depends on the type of company and how much company, I think, especially at the beginning, when you see everyone together, mm-hmm. um, there's a, a huge theme of claustrophobia in this production. And that like, we start the show that way, literally everyone is on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, Sondheim said, that's how he actually originally envisioned it. Like when he wrote the song, he imagined it that mm-hmm. was like basically like bodies on top of bodies. Yeah. Um, Yes, he yes, actually, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah, he actually said he wrote the song once he saw the original set design because, do you know what the original set design was? Oh, remind me. Happy to. <laughs> Brittany, you become my new friend because you know exactly how to please me. Um, the original set design by Boris Aronson, which remember that name, folks, because he's going to pop up in the next couple of Sondheim shows. He was sort of looking around New York City to get an idea of how to design the show. And he's like, oh, New York is cubist and it's very um, harsh angles and it's a city of chrome. So the original set design uh, had a lot of, you know, projections of, of city skyscrapers, but it was also it was cubist. It was made of steel and chrome and all these like platforms in almost like kind of cage like environments. And it had a working elevator. And sometimes saw all these different levels and platforms and the steel and the elevator. And he's like, that's it. It's, it's all the actors coming on each platform and like moving to different platforms and making their way down the elevator that in fact that whole long note where they hold the we love you was timed <laughs> specifically because he asked Michael Bennett and Boris Aronson he's like how long does it take that elevator to go from that platform to the stage and they timed it out like oh you know probably like 10 measures 12 measures he's like great that's how long they hold the note for amazing yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I know there's an iconic picture of um Elaine on on it, it looks like a balcony but it's part of the the cube structure yeah and oh just glorious <laughs> so so glorious um yeah moving along we have a lovely song it's little things you do together which Joanne sings this song kind of happens um as an outside perspective in the same way that Bobby's like an outside perspective in the opening song and Sondheim said that this all kind of came from the fact that when reading the scenes that George Firth had written, he's like, these characters don't really sing. These aren't Rodgers and Hammerstein characters where it's like, well, you know, if I loved you time and again, it doesn't 
flow like that. So he said, this is a situation where the content dictated the form. And so he realized that a lot of the songs had to be commentary in a Brechtian way, even though he hates Brecht. And he says, he's like, I'm keenly aware that I wrote a Brechtian score and I hate Brecht. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's like, but that's, but that's what the show required. And this is sort of the first song that really kind of plants that image of like, a lot of these songs aren't actually happening in the moment. These songs are happening outside of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Does Bobby hear this song? in your production is bobby aware that joanna's singing the song totally okay amazing yeah i like that because <laughs> not a lot not a lot of productions do that they have like bobby freeze on the action with uh uh sarah it's sarah and harry right yep yay i'm gonna keep on asking you because there are times when i'm like which one is this again uh that helps connect it i like that um what can you talk about the song for, for a little bit? I mean, without giving too much weight yeah. about your production, but- Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, cause like all of these, um, like Bobby's very self-aware in this production. Good. <laughs> and like in on the in on the joke, if that makes sense, which makes it all the more like a nightmare for her. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, you know, her, her friends are mid karate twist. Then the music starts playing and she's like, what? And then Patti Lapone comes out and starts singing to her. And it, it's so bizarre and so lovely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love that this is like the first kind of seamlet because it, it gives you this idea of like, oh, okay, here we are, perfect marriage. They are so happy together. This is what we think marriage looks like. And like, you know, the cookie cutter thing. And then you see all of the, the fringe around the sides and that they're both aware of it and they're all coping um, and they're making it work. And it's, it's just so endearing. And um, in our production, it's Chris Sieber and Jen Samard who I got to do a production of Annie with um, like two years before that. And so I was like, they were the first two people I texted when I realized I was going to do the show because they were already announced. And I was like, guys, we're going to play. Wait. <laughs> they are perfect together. Oh, oh my God. Yes. First of all, I love, <laughs> I just love her line delivery on um, there's cinnamon in the coffee, Bobby. The odd taste is cinnamon. It's just like, yeah, that's the first line of the scene. It's, it's I- like a laugh line. Like it's, absolutely she's oh god i love jennifer samard has already gotten a lot of love on this podcast just she i think she's one of the most unique performers to come out of like broadway stardom in the most recent years in a way that like Mm -hmm. i think of a of a barbara harris or uh i don't love her but carol channing like this this person who is who is so unique and I'm like God, I just I will see everything she she does forever because I want to see what her interpretation of it's going to be. Yeah. Ugh, she's she's great. Uh it almost feels in a way especially when you to say that like Bobby is keenly aware of Joanne and music starts to play. It's almost as if like Bobby's watching this scene unravel and then as soon as Joanne starts to sing it's like Bobby watches something happen and it reminds him her of a moment of a conversation that they had with Joanne in the past. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like if I were to make a movie of this it would be Bobby's in the scene and the karate's happening and it cuts to Bobby like at a bar with Joanne and Joanne's just casually saying like, it's the little things you do together, like that kind of stuff yep. and, and relates to it. Um, totally. Yeah, because the show does take place sort of in nowhere land slash in the mind of Bobby, in the memory of Bobby. And so a lot of the songs actually do come from Bobby's perspective in an interesting kind of uh, meta way. Mm. which. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I never really was aware of until I sort of got through it again. And part of that is also what I bring to it as I sort of come at it because I was working, I've been I've been working on, the project might be over soon because the person who hired me doesn't really know what they want 
they don't know if they want mm. something or something. See what oh, I did there? Fun. See what I did there? <laughs> um, yeah, basically, you know, wrote a bunch of songs about, you know, life in New York. And this person is a very specific type of person and all their songs have that very specific mind frame. And they've asked me to write a pilot for them that tells different stories using all of this person's songs. And I had to very nicely say like, all of your songs have one point of view. I can't, mm. I can't imagine a woman singing any of this. I can't imagine a young person singing any of this. So I came mm. up with the idea of like it all being from the perspective of one person who, you know, writes these songs in their heads. And uh, that, that way at the very least, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it solves the problem. Like, why does this song that's supposed to be sung by this like 45 year old woman and then this one from like this 20 year old, you know, uh, black man, like, why do they sound like they're both coming from a white heterosexual male? It's like, well, because mm -hmm. they're coming from his brain and how he's trying to work all that. Again, doesn't fix everything. I'm gonna fix that one thing. The person I said this to doesn't love that idea. It's like, what are you talking about? I wrote all these songs about New York. I'm like, you wrote about a very white upper crust New York. Uh, mm -hmm. Which again, like, there's no shame in that. Sondheim writes about a very upper class white bread New York, but I like, like own it and like try to make that work artistically for you and know that like right. you don't and know that you don't speak for everyone. Mm -hmm. I say that as someone who does speak for everyone, it's it's a burden. Uh, but that's something that I realized with it's the little things to do together uh, is that it is very much like all these things kind of come from the recesses of, of Bobby's mind in the same way that like another hundred people is almost, you know, what Bobby remembers Marta said about New York uh, mm -hmm. was while he I'm going to keep saying he she because while Bobby has mostly been a he currently Bobby is a she and I love that Bobby's currently a she so I'm just going to keep saying he she um, so everyone just understand that that's why I'm saying that there's no other reason um, other than the fact that I don't want inconsistency I don't want to say he one minute and then she the next minute totally. uh, <laughs> and he's like thank you for clarifying that that no one cared about um <laughs> I don't have much to say about Sorry Grateful. I don't know if you have much to say about it. Do you? Anything? You know, it's funny. I, um, <laughs> it's actually like one of my favorite songs in the show. I think because of all of the chaos that had happened just before it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't know if it's, if it's just the, the way it is composed. I really love the melody. I think it's so heartfelt. Um, and maybe it's the gender swap thing where you really see these kind of these these platonic male friendships that she has and they're they're trying to kind of like gently coach her mm -hmm. in a way as they go about um throughout this throughout this number uh they're like cleaning up the chaos of the room mm -hmm. um and oh, it's that's nice so simple and really lovely and like i told that to chris fitzgerald um I was standing in for Katrina for some lighting things and uh, I told him that and he was like, uh oh, if that's your favorite song in the show, we have a problem. <laughs> I was like, How dare he? <laughs> How dare he? That's a lot to be your favorite song. When you said it was one of your favorites or your favorite, I was like, great, like, have that. Um, it's not that I don't like the song, I do like the song. Um, what I'm keenly aware of is that in the original, original versions of Company, and maybe this is where the critic kind of got into about the gender dynamics was how there are two different songs where the husbands tell Bobby about marriage. And one is, you know, no double-edged sword. And the other one is very much like a don't do it kid. And yeah. I believe in your production, the, the wives sing, have I got a guy for you? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Which is nice because it offers two different perspectives and, al and allows 
sorry, grateful to kind of have um, greater weight. I think the one thing I don't yeah. like about the song is just, I don't know if it's meant to be funny. I don't think it is, but it's every time it's the, then she walks in or like, then she goes out and the music goes, da 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 and still mm-hmm. you're sorry. And I'm like, I feel like that should be a laugh line, but it's not really played for laughs. And I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, you're sorry, grateful. Then she leaves and still you're sorry, grateful. And it's, <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, I think it is. It's a slight chuckle. It's like one of those, like everybody's smiling really hard and you can't hear mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. I think just the yeah. original cast recording, the original guys, they don't really play it with like a twinkle in their eye when they do that. They, they play it very croonery, which is why it makes me chuckle in a way. Like, oh, I don't think you really totally. like, yeah. So that's a yeah, pro- no, this is, this version is not sung through, even though these guys are fabulous singers. It's, um, it's not. It's really tender and like super casual. You're sorry, grateful, regretful, happy. Why look for answers when none occur? You'll always be what you always were. Has nothing to do with all to do with her. Uh, then we have the pot smoking scene with Jenny. Uh, your production, David's the one who is sort of is the Jenny in the scene, right? It's the one who's like yeah. not, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is that's an interesting scene where it's for me, it's two people who probably are like very different from each other but because they love each other and understand their differences they're able to kind of like give a little of themselves for the other one um yeah Yeah. that scene is tricky because a lot of it is unspoken Mm -hmm. like it's uh, compared to the the first couple we see who is who is so clearly unraveled and they know each other's isms and that kind of thing like jenny and david are not as open with Bobby about it. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to put the, like the subtle actions that, that happen throughout, like, um, like Jenny telling David to like subtly wrap things up and maybe we should, you know, go inside, like that kind of stuff. It's, um, it's much more subtle and like unsettling actually. Yeah. Well, it's also the first time that Bobby isn't able to read the room, which- yeah. It's something that I would say is actually a talent of Bobby's for most of the show is Bobby's ability to kind of see what's going on and like adjust uh, himself, herself during it. Uh, mm-hmm. That pod smoking scene, like, yeah, Bobby like has absolutely no clue what's happening. And I think because as you said, there's so much that's unspoken and there's um, a truly like personal connection that they have that they don't share with so many people. Bobby's not really able to uh, grasp onto it. That's just something that, Bobby's never really had and that's sort of shown with you could drive a person crazy with the mm-hmm. with the trio of girlfriend boyfriends because they Bobby says I'm not I'm not a, the classic deflecting I'm not avoiding marriage if anything it's avoiding me and it's mm. I guess mm-hmm. it's one of those things like as a single person myself and have been single most of my life I always say I'm going to die alone and it's probably true but I also say I also say this to someone like it took me a long time to kind of be comfortable with myself to date. I didn't date at all in high school. I was sort of surrounded by people who are much more comfortable in their own skin. And mm-hmm. I just never felt confident enough that like, if someone thought I was attractive, I was like, well, something's wrong with you then. Like, look at me. Like, why would you be attracted to me? No. Um, 
it's just it's just the fact it's like that's how I always kind of was in high school and it took again college as much as I hated some of my musical theater teachers in college it was a good time for me personally to be like you know what I have something to say I'm a human being and like if someone thinks I'm attractive like great I I don't know if this is um gonna get me canceled by the PTA uh if their kids listen to this podcast but I the thing I like most about sex isn't even the act but just that someone sees your naked body and doesn't run for the hills I'm like fantastic I've got something going on here that doesn't repulse you. Love it. Aww. Um, yeah, that's definitely part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what Patty said in her dressing room? Best thing about sex, someone looks at your body and goes, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to work with that. <laughs> Probably. I wouldn't put it past her. <laughs> no, she's a sexual woman. She says as much in her memoir. Amazing. Drive a Person Crazy <laughs> is perhaps the first real bop of this show. And I think because mm-hmm. it's written in such a very distinct style. Do you have any personal opinions on You Could Drive a Person Crazy? Yeah, it's funny because it's like you haven't like really met the boyfriends yet. So this is kind of like their, you know, their kind of big first number. And uh, in our production, it's just it's a big dance number. That's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We haven't really met them. And again, this is sort of Bobby's, uh, I guess, image of them, which in a weird way, in a weird twisted way, and again, a weird meta way, shows that Bobby does have some self-awareness that uh, he, she's not really treating the boyfriend, girlfriends super well, that like, this is mm-hmm. the song that they're singing in Bobby's head. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. like and, and again, sort of shows the detachment of how Bobby lives because by being detached, you know, yes, you're not really connected to as much, but you also get a great sense of self-awareness and you're keenly uh, on, not on guard, but yeah, I've said it already, but aware of your surroundings and and what people think of you. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is very interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and, and on top of all of that, it's a bop. I like the sort of mm-hmm. uh, how someone is waiting sort of feels like it's being sung into nothing, like this big mm-hmm. void of nothing. Um, mm-hmm. The like a limbo almost. I don't know. It's a mm-hmm. it's a beautiful song melodically, and then lyrically, I'm kind of like it's actually sort of toxic if that makes sense. Mm. Of yeah, I could see that because it's it's projecting this image onto someone that doesn't exist and probably will never exist. Of like someone's out there who's a little bit of all the people I love. And like the best thing about each person that I love and they're out there waiting for me. And I'm like, they're probably not the person you meet. You can, first of all, you can't control who you fall in love with. Like, that's just a thing that happens. Um, But when you sort of project this image of not perfection, but expectation on somebody, like no one's going to live up to all that. Like who, who out there is really like equal parts, Jenny, Susan, Sarah, uh, Amy, Joanne, mm. plus like, you know, Larry, David, Harry, like all those people, like no, really no one. The, the, there's going to be some pieces missing and some a- added pieces. Uh, but I do mm-hmm. love the line, um, hurry, wait for me. Mm-hmm. Like hurry up and yeah. get here so you can wait for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it, it gives you a little insight into like, well, you know, if Bobby was terribly cynical about 
like overtly cynical about not, you know, finding the right person. Like we don't have much of a show after that, <laughs> but um, it, it does show you like, okay, well maybe like he's or she's harboring these ridiculous ideals and, and circumstances. And maybe that's a reason why Bobby's not with somebody. I, Absolutely. You know, it, it, it's so unrealistic that like, it kind of makes sense. It kind of gives you some, some more info about the character of like, oh, okay, there's oh. there some issues. Oh, by all means, by all means, when I talk about it being toxic, I don't mean that as a criticism. I think that is very much the point of the song. Yeah. Uh, but I do think people sometimes get caught up with how beautiful it is melodically. Totally. Mm-hmm. That they're like, oh, what a lovely yearning song. In the same way, that, like a lot of Rogers and Hammerstein songs, people are like, oh, it's so beautiful. I'm like, in context of the show, I guess it's a beautiful melody, but it's talking about a very, you know, like damaging moment for a person, um, which is again, very mm-hmm. intentional. Uh, mm-hmm. So I do love that. And yeah, as you said, it shows that Bobby still has a way to go, that even yeah. Bobby is Bobby is interested in the idea of marriage and the idea of being with someone, but doesn't really know what that means yet still. And it hasn't really done the work uh, to to be with that person. So I, I like mm-hmm. it. Um, and it's a lot of insecurities too. You see a lot of Bobby's like, would I know him even if I met him? Mm-hmm. Did I miss him? Have I let him go? Oh God, like, yeah. ah. You know, it's, the hurry away for me is really, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, but like, it's, it's the stakes are a little higher. You know what yeah. I mean? It's, well, it's, it's, an, it's an extension of Marry Me a Little where it's um, like, the hurry away for me, it's like, wait, uh, like get here so you can be here when I'm ready to get married. Um, yes. And then Marry Me a Little is like, I'm now ready to put in a foot. And it's it's it's, it's still very much coming from a selfish place, uh, which yeah. is fair. We're all selfish by design. Would I know her even if I met her? Have I missed her? Did I let her go? A Susan sort of Sarah, a Jenny-ish Joanne. Wait for me, I'm ready now. I'll find you if I can. Another hundred people, such a bop. I, I honestly, mm-hmm. I think what I love about Another Hundred People more than anything, well, like I, the song is absolutely fantastic. And in fact, fun facts, I don't know if you know this, uh, this song was written for the woman who originated the role, Pamela Myers. Yeah, I yep. didn't know this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because her, she had this stellar audition, mm-hmm. and they like, were like, "Oh, no, we have to have her." And yeah, yeah like, like one of the best story. auditions Sondheim's ever seen. He said, uh, "Where because mm-hmm. Marta was supposed to be this like uh, very New York, uh, like Upper West Side Jewish girl, um, and Pamela Myers comes in, who's like Ohio Christian blonde." But she's just so good. And they're like, we have to do something. So they kind of tweak mm-hmm. the part for her. And then Sondheim writes another hundred people for her. And and uh, one of the, one of those great, like, we made it work out of town moments was originally another hundred people was a standalone song. And I think it was even an act two originally, not even act one. Mm-hmm. And all the and all the park scenes were sort of separate scenes. But the show was running like three hours and audiences were like, we're really not happy right now. So they were cutting a lot of stuff and they cut another hundred people for like a couple of days. And he said that Pamela Myers was so like, okay with it. Like clearly like was sad not to have a song, but was so like, yeah, no, whatever works for the show. And he was so devastated by that response. He like basically blurted out like, I'll, I'll, I'll put that song back in. I promise, I promise. Without like really knowing what he was talking about. He's like, I'll do it, I swear. 
And so he and Hal Prince and George Firth like kind of got together. He's like, we have to make the song work. I promised Pam. And mm-hmm. so what they did was they put it in act one and they took all the park scenes and interspersed it, which makes it even better in my opinion. Totally, um, I agree. Yeah, I love the April scene, April Andy scene. I just think it's so fun in a way where like, we've established April Andy as this person who like, despite being maybe a little uh, vapid, thinks in such like thinks so outside of the box that their responses always take you by surprise and that's sort of where the humor comes from yeah definitely that's a good way to put it thank it's you it's so endearing the way yeah. that it comes out it's just like you you can't help but fall in love with this character who's like who means so well yeah so well Bless and the heart. show doesn't make fun of the character either which i really enjoy yeah like mm-hmm. doesn't there are no jokes at this character's expense um you know, obviously they're sort of fetishized a bit in the poor baby scene, but mm-hmm. in the way that like is true of any person who's on a, you know, third date where it's like, yeah, like that's a great story, but like, really, can we just have sex now? Like that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And yeah, to yeah, be yeah. fair, when you look like Claiborne Elder, it's like, no, maybe like, let's have sex now, <laughs> please. You're, you're in my room. You're in your underwear. Can we please have sex? Yep. <laughs> Not, yep, okay. yep, yep. Not to fetishize him, but you know. I just did. <laughs> Getting married today. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. That little ditty. That, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 pop standard that's on the radio all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's there's um this was originally a song called the wedding is off which I don't know if you ever heard it. It's um. Um no, I haven't heard uh, like a recording of it. But I you're know. aware of its existence. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, Vanessa Williams sings a bit of it in Sondheim on Sondheim. And you can sort of hear the origins of Getting Married Today, but it's a little too controlled. Um, and Sondheim okay. says, well, it's because it all rhymes and there's not really any, a lot of rhyming in Amy's verse. I'm like, it's also that, you know, whereas you have maybe 15 words in a lyric for Wedding is Off, you have 90 for Getting Married Today, which really shows how like uh, anxious Amy, uh, Amy Jamie is that day. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, and it actually, this is one of those songs where I don't think sometimes the best at writing comedy songs, but this is a case where I think it just absolutely is a perfect comedy song because mm. it's constantly going, giving you whiplash of Amy's yeah. verse, then Jenny singing. And then we go to, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. what's his face? Um, not David, um, Paul. Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, but by morning, I'll be floating in the Hudson with the other garbage. It's, ah. <laughs> uh, yep. And like how much Amy Jamie just like hates themselves for like being so anxious, but also they think the anxiety is coming from the fact that they genuinely are a terrible person and like shouldn't be married. And that, like who can't relate to having that feeling every once in a while where like you're just so, there's so much pressure on this one moment, on this one day and everything just sort of comes crashing down and all of your confidence just betrays you. And every insecure thought you've ever had comes to the forefront. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know if you can relate. I'm sure, I'm sure you wake up every morning and you go, oh, thank goodness I'm me. But I, I definitely have woken up some mornings being like, huh, I guess I'm me. <laughs> like, oh, God. Yeah, no, I can definitely relate. It's, um, it's just the perfect hybrid of, of lyric and score. I mean, you, like everything just meshes together so perfectly. Um, yeah like blink and you'll miss it like Sondheim has put in so many like wonderful little tidbits here and there especially like with it being such a love letter to New York City like I just Mm -hmm. love all of the references 
oh yeah husband in the garbage and i think it's like weird is like well another hundred people is um truly like a love letter to all the people that come into new york getting married today is like it is a love letter but in the way of i don't know being blatantly honest about what the city holds in addition you know like the culture and and the and the parks like we also have garbage everywhere and we have and we have psycho and every street corner has a psychoanalyst and Mm -hmm. yeah this is like the non-romanticized version (laughs) yeah that like i also weirdly love you know it's in order to love something you kind of have to accept the the bumps that it it has as well again you have to look Mm -hmm. at the naked body and say i'll work with that Oh, can I put in a, a juicy tidbit about getting married today? I wasn't sure if you were going to say Absolutely it. Absolutely you know not. I want no recorded? juicy tidbits. This is my <laughs> podcast and I'm only going to go through what I want to go through. Please, juicy tidbits, tell me everything. So I think they talk about this in the, the documentary when they were recording Getting Married Today that I forget what um, the actress's name was. Beth what Howland. Was name who originally did. Beth yeah, Howland. She didn't, she didn't know the notes. <laughs> She was basically monologuing it. So they had to take a long time in the recording session for her to learn the da 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 Yeah. Which I just love because like if I were in her shoes, like the notes don't matter. They don't matter before the recording session. You might want to learn them. Yeah, he's like, we're kind of preserving my music for the first time, Beth. Like maybe give their actual music. Yeah, it's a it's a great exchange where he says to Beth, he's like, um, so this has actually been happening for a couple of performances now. You're not really singing the mel the melody, and she goes, Oh, what is it again? Yeah. Pardon me, is everybody here? Because if everybody's here, I want to thank you all for coming to the wedding. I'd appreciate you going even more. I mean, you must have lots of better things to do and not a word of it to Paul. Remember, Paul, you know the man I'm going to marry, but I'm not because it wouldn't ruin anyone as wonderful as he is. Thank you all for the gifts and the flowers. Thank you all. Now it's back to the showers. Don't tell Paul that I'm not getting married today. <laughs> so, marry me a little. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned in an earlier episode there's only one Sondheim show where he wrote a new song later on in the process and put it in the show that I like. This is not mm-hmm. that case because technically speaking, he wrote Marry Me a Little while writing company. They just cut it. Mm-hmm. So I don't count mm-hmm. this as like a, oh, he wrote like an added song. Um, not yeah. in the way that like Country House is added to, was added for Follies or Abbott underneath. The sound still sounds like company. This song originally was written as his proposal to Amy in that scene mm-hmm. where he's like, marry me and everyone will leave us alone. And they cut it because they were like, oh, it's too, it just doesn't fit. And also I'm like, yeah, no one's, you can't really ask a scene partner to stand still for a three minute proposal. Like, yeah, yeah. there are some songs that do that. And I'm like, I could, I would, re- I would refuse to be that scene partner. I, how am I supposed to react to that? Right. Especially after like not getting married today. Like, yeah, I get like, that's painful. I, it is. I guess you could like argue, well, she's so drained by that point, but it's like she's not drained enough to sit for three and a half minutes of marry me a little. Right. Yeah. Maybe 30 seconds. Maybe. Um, especially <laughs> like because it's such a big question. It's it's goddamn marry me. Like who's going to sit there for four minutes? Um, right. Yeah. Which I love. It's this also sort of shows the economy of the of the writing in the scene, which is I also love how I was like, we're not going to go like beat by beat. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. Uh, <laughs> but whatever. I take back what I said. Uh, the economy of the writing in the scene, you're like you think that Amy is so off. Amy Jamie is so off the deep end of like fully not going to do it, not going to get married. Like, I can't I can't I can't. You're like, OK, this person is. I don't want to say far gone in terms of their mentality, like they're very present of where they're at, but they're so riddled with anxiety and so in their own head like you can't imagine them ever coming back from this moment and Bobby inadvertently does that by actually having the first 
honest moment where Bobby says like, marry me and they'll leave us alone. And that's all Bobby really wants. Like stop asking me about marriage, get off my back. You don't really want to get married. I kind of don't want to either. Let's just get married and everyone will stop it. And that's what makes Amy, Jamie go like, oh, both like makes them realize how much they want to get married to Paul, but also like, I don't, but on top of that goes like, oh, I don't want to be like you, Bobby. Like I'm very close (laughs) to becoming you. And I really don't want that. And Bobby's kind of shattered in a weird way because Bobby thought for a moment, like Amy, Jamie was like a kindred spirit in that way. It's like, finally someone who understands. And then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it's like, oh no, you just had a moment of, of weakness and I mistook that for honesty. And now here I am. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a good scene. Yeah, I like it. I like it so much. It's lovely. <laughs> uh, we talked about side by side a bit. I don't really need to go into it all that much. There's one thing. I don't know if you guys did something similar to it that was in the original, which is it was the first moment where Bobby kind of realizes it's like the first thing that's going to foreshadow being alive, which is they're doing the end of the song and it's all big, like, oh, we're one big PTA. And they mm-hmm. each do a little tap break. Side by side. And each couple does a tap break with, you know, one person starting and the other person finishes it. And then it gets to the end of the song and we get to Bobby and Bobby does their tap break. And when they turn to have it finished, there's just an empty space next to them. And mm. and the song finishes with the rest of the company doing like ba da ba da 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 like very hectic. But Bobby mm-hmm. just stands there and looks at the space for the rest of the number. And mm. it's one of those things where I can't even like explain how brilliant it is because it defies verbiage. It's just mm-hmm. it's musical theater at its most effective, where song and staging speak volumes greater than any dialogue could. And Mm -hmm. it really does sort of foreshadow that being alive is coming because it's the moment where, whereas with Amy, Bobby, you know, I think it's the first time Bobby's like honest about where they're at with marriage and then kind of retracts a bit with marrying me a little after that rebuttal, after the the refusal. But side by side is like the first time where Bobby really kind of goes, oh, right. There's no one there. Like that's that's something to think about each time that I talk about how good I am on my own or like all the friends that I have or like marriage is just about being left alone. It's like, oh, no, I am alone. All, all my friends, no matter like what they have going on with them, they have someone to answer their tap break. I don't. Mm-hmm. And what I just said does not properly give weight to that moment because as I said, it defies verbiage, but it was the best I could do. Yeah, no, I love that imagery. Um, it's definitely different in our show. It's in this idea of like, her being caught up in a nightmare a little bit her friends are like just on crack Mm. and uh the the tap breaks are now like um partner hand claps game okay and so you know they're they're kind of uh, each couple has their own thing and then they turn to bobby and her answer is to like do like you know yeah has to do it alone yeah and they're like boo (laughs) (laughs) and then they get up caught up in all these party games to the point where like she throws up and is so like overwhelmed with all of her crazy friends that's kind of yeah it's actually not a highlight of her being alone in that way which is interesting it's because the the show has to build to being alive 
to have it make sense. And because Sondheim says that he doesn't believe being alive really makes sense in the show. He's like, we didn't really do the work to make that the ending. We kind of tacked the ending on. I don't really agree with him. I think that you that there are um, moments. Uh, I, don't, I can't. Why can't I think of it? Like you know when. <laughs> I can't think of the word, so I'm going to come up with the worst description of it ever. Like when you're hiking a trail and, you know, like stick a flag in like a certain point. So it's, it's like a marker. That's mar- trail marker. Yeah. Trail marker. Thank <laughs> you. Ah, oh, God, I, I need a second coffee when this is over. Um, it's a, there are trail markers in the show that lead you to being alive. And I think the first, Absolutely. yeah, the first real one is Amy rejecting Bobby's proposal. The second one is side by side where they do the tap break or the hand clap and Bobby realizes there's no one to answer my call. The things that all of, her, of Bobby's friends, the things that they're doing mm-hmm. um, are impossible without two people. Yes, that is <laughs> exactly know, it. Like, what does it's, that it's, mean then? There's a line in 30 Rock. I don't know if you're familiar with 30 Rock. Um, I love 30 Rock. Yeah. Hang, Brittany, with each passing minute, I'm falling more and more in love with you. I'm so happy we're meeting. Um, yes. there's, the, there's the episode, I think it's season... It's season four, yes, because that's when Elizabeth Banks is on the show. And Liz mm-hmm. gets um, oral surgery. And the whole like thing is how she has no one who can pick her up from oral surgery. And yes. yeah, she thinks, you know, oh, I'll just, I'll find a way to do it alone. There's one of my favorite jokes. Some things are harder to do with two people, like monologues. <laughs> yes! She's so funny. But when she has her hallucination at the dentist after she gets out, and um, John Hamm is there, and Jason Sudeikis, and um, Dennis, uh, Dean Winters, I think is the actor's name. And she says to them, um, you know, I take something away from each of you, and I know I don't need to have someone, but I do want to find love. And I think that's mm-hmm. sort of the healthy mm-hmm. way to think about that. It's like no one, a lot of the marriage, and I think what kind of keeps driving Bobby away from marriage is so many people in the show keep saying, you're not complete till you're married. You're not a person and you need, and right. it's not that you need it, but it's good to have that, that support mm-hmm. system. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. I like it. It's it's good, it's, it's good musical theater. And then there's a seduction scene that is both kind of hot and weirdly hysterical. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. And the husband sing poor baby in your version, right? Yeah. Got it. That makes sense. Because there's sort of like a weird, what did I word? The, the melody for poor baby kind of like hangs in the air as, as Bobby is having this mm-hmm. date with Andy April that's leading to sex. And it's, this is the one song where I do feel like, uh, the writers are a little more hypocritical of marriages, whereas the rest of it, I think they're very good at finding the balance of like, you know, there's hypocrisy, but you make it work. And this is really lovely, but sometimes there's a dark side. This is the one time where it's like, oh, everyone who looks at Bobby has this undercurrent of desire to not only be them, but be with them. It's like, not only should Bobby mm-hmm. find someone, that person could should kind of be me. TikTok? Any Donna stories with TikTok? Has she ever, did she ever tell you about doing this number? Mm, no, actually, we never talked about it. She writes 
she writes about it in her book. If you've read her autobiography, it's really lovely. Um, trying to I think if there's anything specific that hung out. I think she was just really excited to have a full-on dance number. Yeah. That. <laughs> she was like, it's turkey lurkey time, but without that pesky 20 other people to dance with me, I, I get yeah. to dance alone. Totally. Yeah. Totally, totally. Um, well, so I know the original TikTok happens while Bobby and Andy and April... Bobby, Andy, and April uh, are having sex. And it's sort of the contrast of making love and having sex when you hear different uh, people, you hear April saying like, oh, I really like him. And Bobby's like, what's her name? How are you, are you able to talk a little bit about what your production did with TikTok? Cause I don't, it was, it was different than that. Yes. Yeah. It's totally reimagined. We still call it the TikTok ballet, but it's, it involves the entire company. <laughs> and um yeah, it definitely takes place while Bobby, April, and Andy are in bed together. But it's kind of like, um, you know, what we see with, with Patty, just like entering the scene and, and Bobby's aware of that. And mm -hmm. so uh, Bobby gets to take a step back and watch the ballet unfold. <laughs> and it. it's, uh, I mean, overall, it's kind of a look into... Um, what a potential future with April and Andy could be, could look like. And then, you know, it asks the question, does Bobby want that or not? Interesting. Yeah. I can relate to that because there have been many times I've been intimate with a person and my mind wanders and I start oh, to yeah. think about many things. Yeah. I, I go straight to the, um, what's the last name? Oh, Brittany so-and-so. I don't know if that could work. Oh, that sounds nice. That has a nice ring, but you know what I'm thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see the movie What Women Want? Yes. With yeah, Mel Gibson? Yeah, yeah. Who, I mean, uh -huh. I'm, I'm going to make it a point to try to not bring him up too often. I really don't like saying his name. But <laughs> there is a scene where he's having sex with Marissa Tomei and he can hear her thoughts the entire time and her brain starts to wander. And I love that because there's a moment where he's like, yeah, we're finally into it. Like, I'm doing it. It's good. And all of a sudden he hears her think, is Britney Spears on Jay Leno tonight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that is so real. Oh yeah, that looks so funny. Oh my <sighs> God. <laughs> so what we're saying is that Marianne watched that one scene of What Women Want. She was like, what if I took that but made it an existential crisis? Because that, yep. and, I was, and you know what? That's why she has two Tony Awards. Yep. Ladies Who Lunch. The, all mm -hmm. I can say is um, Anna Kendrick sang this at the age of 16 and broke a glass in the movie Camp. Oh yeah. Oh, she's, yes. Iconic. She's fucked. I'm ready. And the goddamn show must go on. So let's get cracking, shall we? <laughs> Do you, There's a famous story with this, with Elaine Stritch. Actually, two famous stories. One is they're out of mm -hmm. town, the very first performance out of town, and she forgets the words. And she just goes, ah, and puts her hands in her mouth. And after the show, they're like, so there, there are two interpretations. One is um, everyone afterwards is like, Elaine. What was with putting your hands in your mouth? And she was like, I was trying to find the words. And then the other part of the story is in her biography, Hal Prince was like, there was already kind of a struggle because she was the most established theater person in the room when we were doing the show. And, you know, kind of, she has this great insecurity about her that she pushes aside with this like harsh exterior. And I was sort of willing to kind of compromise with it for a while. And then we do that first performance out of town. And I go backstage and I go, you can't do that again you like he's like he's like no more shenanigans get your shit together 
And mm -hmm. from then on, she always remembered the words. So everyone else is like, oh, Elaine forgot the words. And Hal Prince is more like, Elaine decided she was going to forget the words to make it about Elaine. <laughs> Who's to say both of those, both those people are no longer with us. They can't really defend yeah. the story anymore. But I do like, <laughs> I do like both those sides. Um, the other one is when she's learning the song, there's the line, um, perhaps a piece of Mahler's. And she mm. told Sondheim she thought it was a bakery. And she said, so where's this bakery? And he goes, so oh. Elaine, I have to go to the bathroom because <laughs> he couldn't handle it. Oh my God. Oh, yep. that's so funny. Oh. A matinee, a pinter play, perhaps a piece of Mahler's. She didn't realize he meant the composer. Oh my God. I mean, honest mistake, right? right? Absolutely. Listen, I thought that Stravinsky was a jewelry store. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We, we all are big nothings. I mean, you, you had a, a front row seat to Patty doing this. Talk to me about Patty. Tell me about Patty. Patty, ladies who lunch, stories, uh, the intricacies, anything. I want it all. Brandy, just go. Floor is yours. Uh, I got to see this in London. Um, I was there on vacation uh, and uh, I just happened to get a ticket because I was honestly there to see Hadestown. And uh, I had an extra night. And I was like, you know, let me just see company. Patty's in it. It's a, there's a girl playing Bobby. Great. Okay, cool. Um, and of course, you know, you wait the whole show to get to Patty singing Ladies Who Lunch. You can just feel it in the audience and then and just the whole energy shifts. Um, because it's set in a nightclub and there's this like ridiculous scene change going into it. And um, absolutely everybody is on stage for it. The entire cast, as well as like this kind of ensemble that we've also created to just add extra bodies on stage. And it's like a modern day, like Euro, like Eurocentric, very like leather and sequin kind of fishnets, ridiculous club. Um, we are two and wild and crazy guys. Exactly. And then Patty's in the middle of it um, wearing this, it's an Arctic fox coat, I believe. Um, and big old sunglasses. Ugh. And um, yeah, I think I can say this. The woman never gets up from the chair. She sings the whole gosh darn song on this stool. And it is the most powerful thing you've ever seen. It's mm. brilliant. Did, was there, I'm trying to figure out how I want to word this because yeah. she, she, because she had done it in London already, but then in rehearsals mm -hmm. for Broadway, uh, were you able to sort of like watch the process of that song kind of taking shape, like her way into it, how, Marianne's way into it? No. I think, um, I think a lot of that workshopping happens in London because when we started setting it here, um, that was like... The song that um, nobody was worried about, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like we were all very specifically choreographed to move on certain lines. Mm -hmm. We only have this amount of bars to get from point A to point B. Um, it's really meticulous what happens backstage. So all of us are like, okay, well, don't step on Patty's song. Don't move on the wrong word. But like once we were over that, it was like, you know, it was kind of hands off. So I wish I had seen the work that she mm -hmm. did to get into it, but it's, it's a masterclass in um, stillness and letting the words work for themselves rather than trying to put on extra layers. I mean, she's fearless and ridiculous in the song and um, extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. That's great. Another long, exhausting day. 
another thousand dollars. A matinee of interplay, perhaps a piece of malice. I'll drink to that, and one for Mahler. There's something about the scene with Ladies to Lunch. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's it's specifically afterwards because Larry talks mm-hmm. about Joanne and mm-hmm. says, you know, you don't really know Joanne, Bobby. Like, you know the Joanne that she puts up when we're, yeah. in, we're in public. And I think that is, I mean, and they said like they wrote this part for Elaine Stritch and that is very much who Elaine Stritch was. She, Elaine Stritch is kind of the epitome of attack them before they attack you because it's like she'll come at you with all of your claws and the moment you come at her with a toothpick she like crumbled into a million pieces and Mm -hmm. because she was a vulnerable human being and was always very insecure about her about whether she was intellectual enough as we know about Mahler and you know whether she was strong enough and I think Joanne is sort of an example of that as someone who has lived so much life and knows so much and has, has seen so much and has also been hurt so many times that now is sort of like created this facade that sometimes is like indistinguishable for her of like who she truly is. Um, mm-hmm. And there's almost kind of like, I guess when you have a female Bobby, it's almost sort of a mirror of, you know, you could be me in a warning kind of way of someone who has put up so many fronts that now like I, I genuinely don't even know who I am anymore. Like this man who genuinely loves me claims to know the real me. And maybe that's true, but like, I, I'm putting on so many different airs. I don't even know when I'm being the real me anymore. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's something for Bobby to kind of realize. But I do love, and maybe, I don't know if this is how Patty played it. And I don't know how many actresses do play this. When I read the script and originally Joanne makes a pass at Bobby or so we are made to believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I believe when you guys do it, it's more that she's offering Larry to Bobby as like a potential partner, which yeah. I think there's another layer to that because Patty is a bit older than the actor playing Larry in your production. So it's almost like, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I can't really keep up with him in the way that he would like me to. You can. Um, so he's still my husband, but like, this is someone who you can now have, you know, essentially what you wanted with Jamie of like someone who you're with, but you're not really tied to them you're not responsible for them they'll just take care of you or in the Mm -hmm. original scene i will take care of you Mm -hmm. and then bobby says well who will i take care of and that's sort of the crack that breaks the dam open and everything sort of floods out from there i wonder sometimes if joanne honestly means the offer she gives or if it's a classic joanne of knowing exactly the right button to press of i'm gonna needle this point in you and if you take it, fine. Like I'm, I'm no fool. Like I'll I'll follow up with what I say. But if you act the way I think you're about to react, that like this is going to be like the moment for you. I don't know. Can, can you elaborate on that? Like especially when you watch it with Patty. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> you know this almost like mother daughter relationship. I remember seeing it at the West End and being like, wait, what just happened? I'm so used to to having. Joanne, come on to Bobby. I almost mm-hmm. wish that remained, to be honest. I think mm. that's a really interesting choice. But, you know, if we're going to go with the, um, this, this kind of 
just above everything sort of attitude and like, oh yeah, no, just take Larry. He'll take care of you. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm in charge of everything. Um, it feels like a little bit of a, a test and she knows exactly how it's going to play out um, yeah. when she offers it to Bobby, knowing that she won't. Um, and that's kind of this like interesting dynamic because then you see it gets really tense and heated almost in, um, in, in not a hot way, in, in a more aggressive way. Yeah, uh, La- Bobby lashes out. I've seen it. Yeah. What do you get? You know, don't don't throw that in my face anymore. Like I, I almost like with Joanne, Joanne is like the safe haven of all the married friends of like, you get it. Married life is weird. You're the one person who's never going to tell me to be with someone. And all of a sudden, like you're the one who is telling me to be with someone. And like, and on top of that, like when I have this moment of, uh, I don't want to say vulnerability, but like when I yeah. let slip what's really in my subconscious, yep. rather than like, act the way that I think Joanne would you go well did you listen to yourself kid look at you like I'm so proud it's like fuck you no like that was supposed to be a moment of weakness and you're supposed to call me out on it instead you're embracing it like fuck everything yeah Uh, oh yeah because you you hear Joanne talk about all of her multiple husbands so many times clearly there's a front happening you know like she mm -hmm. makes us think that she's at peace with her her life choices but um there are some cracks on the surface there and Bobby's privy to that like she can see it. She, she yeah. See it. Show me the person who's at peace with all of her life choices and I will show you a mannequin. Like that is not Seriously. a human, that is not a human being. Like, come on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is leads to the big question. What do you get? Which leads to um, the big final song being alive. Uh, there's also, um, I don't know if you guys kept it. They added in later scripts, uh, a scene that sort of asks the question if Bobby might be gay. Mm-hmm. which I don't love because basically what happened was in the seventies uh, that question was being asked by some audience members like, well, what if Bobby's gay? Cause being 35 and a man and unmarried in 1970, very different to now, which is why I do love the um, gender swap with this company because uh, unfortunately that question is now being asked of women at 35 in a way that it was being asked of men in 1970, mm-hmm. which is unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, especially you'd think after, 23 years after Sex and City came out, we'd be beyond that question. But unfortunately, <laughs> we both progress really quickly and really slowly as a society. Um, it's crazy <laughs> to think how we can we can go like 100 miles in a week and then three feet in 20 years. Like it's oh yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, but yeah, so, we don't have that scene um, in there. We we move on pretty quickly into being alive. But I will say, PJ was almost cast as a woman. Interesting. That's yeah. I like that. Well, I think the other thing is um, it could be, PJ could be a woman could be, and you know, Bobby could be bisexual or even gay. I think mm-hmm. it matters a little less now because especially in New York city, uh, yeah. gender and sexuality is, is much, is much more openly fluid. People are much more accustomed to various sexualities and the idea of, you know, your sexuality preventing you from getting married isn't really, the case right. anymore, which is great, which is, right. yeah. which is phenomenal. Uh, so I mean, I, there could absolutely be women, uh, gr- women, girlfriends, as opposed to boy girlfriends, there could absolutely be girlfriends in addition to boyfriends. Mm-hmm. But, and I do, and I like that your production does identify that with Jamie and Paul, that they're a gay couple. Cause that actually adds a whole other anxiety of, cause with um, gay marriage, mm-hmm or rather marriage, uh, marriage rights for um, the LGBTQ community. 
being such a relatively new thing adds that anxiety mm-hmm. for someone like Jamie who's like, I came out growing up thinking I was never going to get married and I was totally at peace with that. Now all of a sudden I have to get married. Like, well, oh my God, I, that's mm-hmm. a whole layer that I, that's a case where I'm like, oh, just by doing that little switch and not changing any words, it just adds so much. It's great. But yeah, in the seventies, because, you know, homosexuality was starting to be talked about a, a bit more openly, you know, with the boys in the band and then a chorus line and things like that, people started asking that question. And there are some people who think that Bobby is gay and I, or at least the male Bobby is gay. And I mm-hmm. think it bothers me. And maybe you can uh, give your perspective as well. Actually, no, I would love for you to give your perspective as well. Let me reword that. <laughs> I would love that. Um, but for me, because I had someone ask me about this when I, I have a friend who's going to be on the podcast later to talk about Sweeney. And he called me when I said I was going to be talking to you about company. He said, can you Mm -hmm. answer me your perspective? He's like, I've had this conversation with a couple of different friends. Do you think that Bobby as a man in the show originally is gay? And I said, no, because I think that to say that his problem for not getting married is simply that he's a closeted homosexual. I find that to be an oversimplification of what's going on inside of Bobby and also an oversimplification of sexuality of just, yeah. oh, well, what he wants is to be with a man, but that's not really possible in the seventies and he's afraid to let it out. And that's why he won't commit to a, a woman. And I'm like, it, there's so much more to it than that. And to just say that you're actually undermining what it means to come to terms with your sexuality as well. Of like the only thing keeping you from coming out is the fact that like, people expect this one thing of you. It's like, there's so like, that is an element. That's not the only element. And especially in something like company where that's not even the issue. It's, uh, that is a separate entity. And I don't, I don't love that. I think that you could make that happen now if by setting a company in modern day, but I think company has originally written, that's not really the case. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. My first thought was, man, we went through all that. And for that to be the reason why, it seems like a cop out a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's like a, like a, almost like a twist ending. I don't know if you're familiar with um, the crying game from the nineties, the crying game. Not really. It's, it's, it's a, it's a really lovely movie, but there's a whole plot line about this guy who's trying to figure out the death of this one character. And this character who died had a girlfriend that the main character falls in love with. And then it is revealed. The girlfriend is transgender. And this is like 1992 and it's this big reveal. It's considered like one of this, one of like the biggest twists in cinema up there with the sixth sense. And that's not really something that we can do anymore. And I'm thrilled for it because the mm-hmm. idea of someone mm-hmm. being trans isn't a twist. That should be something that should be embraced and, and more transparent. Yeah. Transgenderism is not something that's a reveal in the same way that homosexuality in company is not like a twist. Does that make, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to do that, it needs to be planted throughout the show. And yeah. That's, that's an added layer. I don't know if that's something you can fish out from the existing material, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you might be able to. I mean, look I, what we did with this show. But yeah. like, but I, but I think the difference is with what you guys did, by swapping the genders, you didn't actually alter the theme of the show what you did was actually make the theme much more relevant to today because it was by making bobby a woman you're it's almost it's like looking at the script and going you know what everything that's fitting here is fitting so much more to a woman today than a man is today why not just swap the genders like you just you change a couple of pronouns and the the whole concept of the show is still there and in fact stronger than ever when you add the by trying to find trying to find 
Bobby's homosexuality in the show. It's like you're you're searching for something. You have a magnifying glass, and that's not really how you should look at a text uh, when putting on a production. You should read it yeah. and what's speaking to you, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened mm-hmm. with Marianne with with the female Bobby, and that's why that's why I think uh, everything you've told me and what I have unofficially seen, wink wink, uh, <laughs> I think why it works so well is because your director wasn't like what if I did to this concept? She, you know, read the material and went, wow, this is how this is coming to me. And that's, it's organic Mm -hmm. that way, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) speaking of organic, Sondheim doesn't think that being alive, being alive, doesn't think being alive is organic to the show. And I disagree with him. (laughs) I don't know if you do or don't. It's, I mean, it's an interesting conclusion to this whole story of, um, you know, what happens when you take people on a journey for two and a half hours and it ends with a question <laughs> to me, you know, in terms of like how it resolves for Bobby, it's, it's up for, for Bobby to know. And, and you don't really get let in on like the choice, if that makes sense. Like having to learn this role, every, they're asking us, hey, make a choice for yourself, but don't tell us. And it's up to you. And I was like, yeah. oh, cool i like that yeah <laughs> but like as an audience member receiving it it's like ah wait what did she choose i don't i don't know i can imagine <laughs> it like about it imagine watching who framed roger rabbit and never actually knowing at the end like that's i would be pissed <laughs> someone to crown you with love someone to force you to care someone to make you come through always be there as frightened as you of being alive being alive being alive being alive the song was originally called multitudes of amy and it basically was bobby Mm -hmm. going oh i'm in love with amy i'm gonna find her and you know we're gonna be together and then they threw that out and they did a song called happily ever after which was ends the, the final line is happily ever after in hell and like that's what mm-hmm. marriage is about they go to yeah, boston can't do that <laughs> no. well and they go to boston and everyone's like fuck this shit um yeah and sondheim doesn't like the change because he felt that hell prince was had his producer hat on he's like we need to sell tickets we can't tell the audience that their lives are terrible and what they're doing is wrong uh we need to end on a happy note and sometimes like that was the wrong choice and we copped out i don't think it's a cop-out because as you said it is still a question it's not bobby doesn't end with a marriage and it doesn't uh and in fact and he even says actually what altered everything was there was a scene after happily ever after where bobby like leaves his friends at the party and goes to the park and meets all these other people and does connect with someone but they cut it for time and so happily ever after was like the final song and it was so cynical but i think that it's not did you see the prom, Brittany? I did. Mm-hmm. So do you remember in the show, and the, not in the movie because they altered it in the movie and I don't like how they did it. In the show, when Alyssa tells her mom, like, I am gay, I am the girlfriend that wants to go to the prom. And it's this confrontation, not even confrontation because it's not like a sparring match, but her mother, you see that she has this internal struggle because she loves her daughter and wants her daughter to be happy and not to have too many hardships, but she also is struggling with her own moral dilemma on homosexuality. It doesn't end with her like in the movie where she puts on a dress that a drag queen would wear and go, let's have a kiki. 
She says, she says, we'll talk about it tonight. And it's the first step. And I love it so much. I bring it up all the time. It's one of the few times where I've seen a pop culture work on homosexuality with kids and their parents, where it doesn't end with the parent being like, I did a 180 in three seconds and we're good to go. It's Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a step. And I feel like being alive is a step. It's Mm -hmm. not Bobby finding love and getting married, like running after Marta or Andy or whoever and finding love, but rather like understanding finally what it takes to be in a relationship and what, what makes a relationship so important and uh, allowing themselves to be open to it and to finally say, I'm now willing to commit fully. It's not marry me a little, it's being alive. It's being fully attached to something and sort of, and that, and then you realize that with the scene afterwards that like in order to do so, Bobby kind of has to take their ties to all of their friends away so they can now fully commit to a person uh, instead of mm-hmm. a multitude of people in a network. Somebody crowd me with love. Somebody force me to care. Somebody make me come through. I'll always be there, as frightened as you, to help us survive. You could almost say that the whole show, show takes place like within the hour in the head of Bobby after maybe like another disastrous state or after like having come home from just seeing Joanne and the whole thing is like the past mm-hmm. year in Bobby's head, which that's, mm-hmm. I'm not even saying that's in the text. That's just like in my own head. I'm like, yeah, you could argue that this is what it all is. Like Bobby's just come home from the club after all of that brains, all this stuff. And then finally comes to the conclusion after this night of turmoil, probably drinking themselves into an oblivion and coming <laughs> to being alive. And mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It just makes me, it makes me feel um, like the show has a completion to it, even though it is mm-hmm. open-ended, it feels like we finally have closed up the circle and we're ready to move on to the next story. Yeah. Yeah. It's the next chapter really. Yes. Thank you. Next. Yeah. As, mm-hmm. as a poet once said in her album. <laughs> so company opens at the Alvin. It has wildly varied reviews. Uh, Martin Gottfried uh, says it's a tr- tremendous piece of work, thrilling. Uh, it's magnificent. Walter Kerr says, uh, I didn't love, I didn't like the show, but I did admire it. The show runs for about two years, sometimes at half capacity, but because it was produced so economically, they were able to make their money back. It has a national tour. Dean Jones was replaced by Larry Kurt after about a month because he uh, was already going through his own divorce and he thought that the show might be that bad for his career. And Hal Prince said, if you can give me an opening night I will get you replaced and, and get me the cast recording. I will get you replaced. And apparently that was all he needed. And he all of a sudden like gave this amazing performance. And then Larry Kurt, the original Tony West Side Story comes in. People always say with that production, when Larry Kurt took over, the show got a lot funnier, but it lost a lot of its heart. Whereas Dean Jones was much more of a, you know, mm. bleeding, uh, beating heart, which I appreciate. Uh, ironically, mm. it it gets like the most amazing reviews in London, but loses all of its investment. Whereas on Broadway, like kind of caught all over the place, but it made money. So it's, it's yeah. Weird how that happens. 14 Tony nominations, winning six, including best musical and two for Sondheim uh, music and lyrics. Uh, This is a question for you. Just a bit of trivia. Do you know what the other two musicals that season were? They both kind of don't exist anymore. For company. Oh, 
Not off the top of my head, no. One is The Me Nobody Knows, which is a review based off of let, uh, stor- short stories and letters written by children uh, in New York City and like in inner city homes in New York that they turn into a review. It's very runaways, but it's not as depressing because there's a lot there's a lot of really nice songs about it. It's based, it's it's a more commercial runaways. The other is a show called The Rothschilds by Bach and Harnick, oh, yeah. who did yeah Feather and Apple Tree, mm-hmm. which no one really does anymore. Uh, it's not the it's not the best of shows, but you know it's it's there. Mm-hmm. It happened. Uh, yeah, company has done a lot uh, considering the fact that it's like not. I would say it's not even like the most popular of Sondheim's. It's not one that everyone's like, oh yes, that's the Sondheim. What do you think uh, the takeaway from company is in terms of like musical theater and in, in Broadway? I mean, oh, as far as like its impact in the industry, um, it's nice to see a musical tackle such like large, like lofty ideas and mm-hmm. try to make sense of them. And then coming to the conclusion of like, maybe there isn't, an exact answer yeah (laughs) and that's okay and to just be okay with that um it's unapologetic in that way and um I love that and I I mean I would hope audiences take to it as much as they can because I would love to see more shows like that too you know I think that opens up an avenue for kind of you know a little lofty maybe intellectual types of shows that aren't just like your your movie remakes or <laughs> like, or your fairy tales, you know, yeah. or your golden age revivals, you know. Yeah, like- <laughs> it's I lo- I think there. I don't love revivals that are like, oh, we're just throwing you back to old school Americana. There's yeah. there's there is a place for it for sure, but I think the best golden age musicals are the ones that were that uh, were, uh, that company was influenced by in terms of these shows that tried to tackle very complex characters and themes and whatnot. And then just weirdly, you know, a lot of those revivals forget that. So they're like, oh yeah, remember, they're like, remember Oklahoma and how wholesome it was, which is what I liked about the last revival. They're like, this show tackles some pretty tricky shit. Um, yep. And, and totally. yeah, and giving it that respect and, and understanding, mm-hmm. which I really love. What were responses like to the production when you guys were performing it? Were audiences pretty like responsive? Yeah. Yeah, we were only like, uh, we were less than two weeks of previews in. So everybody there knew what they were coming to um, and were so excited. Mm-hmm. So that, that's probably, what... you know, biased in that way. We haven't had real like normal audiences yet. Okay. <laughs> well, something to look forward to. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm very uh, confident that you guys will be coming back soon. Not to, not to put a jinx on anything, but I will say I'm very confident in your guys' returning sooner rather than later okay rapid fire questions then we're gonna close out because Brittany has things to do on her day off and i've taken up so much of her time we've been here for two and a half hours i know <laughs> that's amazing though that's like the beauty of sunheim and, absolutely and don't worry i'm gonna having had it for a year like yeah. we have stuff to talk about we do have stuff to talk about and i appreciate you <laughs> um indulging me so much okay rapid fire questions the sondheim rhyme what is your favorite lyric in this show and i was actually thinking about getting a tattoo of this um because i've done into the woods four times Best to take the moment present as a present for the moment. Not really a rhyme, but it's my favorite lyric of the show. So <laughs> that's from, but from from Company. What's your favorite lyric? Oh, from oh from Company. I thought you just meant any Sondheim show. Oh. Although I do love that that's your lyric. I also love that you took it from the Prince, where in context of the show, he's using it as like a total seduction line. Oh, it's so great though. 
Oh, it it's is just, wonderful. It works either way. Mm, I don't know if I have a, a favorite one from company, to be honest. When you said, sorry, grateful is probably your favorite song though. You said, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we'll, yeah. any of the lyrics in that, then we'll say. What is it? Uh, good things get better, bad get worse. Wait, I think I meant that in reverse. That's a good one. That's a great one. Uh, where does this show rank for you in the Sondheim canon? God, that's good. That's the title of it. It is in, oh, not my top three, but my top five. I that's perfectly sensible. Yeah. Um, yeah. This one is tricky <laughs> and you have an easy out if you want it. The title is I Had a Dream Cast. Who would you love to see in a production of this show? You know, I, I thought about it and I'm still thinking about it. And to be honest, I just adore this current cast so much. Like there, there's so many wonderful and very specific people that have been cast and I have a hard time picturing anybody else in them right now. I think I have to live with the show a little longer. We have to open the show first. And totally. Then I can think about other people. <laughs> that is absolutely fair. I, I, I had that question already. And then when you became my person for company, I was like, oh, I was like, I don't want to ask her this question because she's in a company that's already so awesome. I was like, I don't know. Maybe she'll be like, I don't know, Tina Fey. Uh, but no, now that I think about it, I don't want Tina Fey and company. I love her, but no. Uh, and then the last question, because Sondheim usually comes back pretty stripped down, you guys are one of the rare revivals that didn't do this. And I love this about you guys. Yeah. But Sondheim revivals tend to be, you know, like the stripped down version, very John <laughs> Doyle, uh, classic stage company, roundabout things. Like how would you, the title of this is called It's the Little Things slash There Won't Be Trumpets because there won't be trumpets in the pit in this stripped down version. What's the most bonkers way you can think of stripping down company to like the most bare bones production ever? Um, well, if you saw a unofficial recording of the show, you know that there are balloons that are involved. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there is a way to do it with Jeff. There's a particular set of balloons that I'm thinking about that you can use in many different ways. <laughs> <laughs> are you talking like sex many different scenarios sex dolls are you talking the about huge sex dolls ones. the huge there are huge balloons in it right, so. right, right, right. yes it's yes like the big three five for 35 and mm -hmm, yeah yeah mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i say set the whole yeah, thing in I, only because like in rehearsals i watched um greg hildreth and christopher fitzgerald clown with these balloons in rehearsal and they mm -hmm. came up with so many hysterical things to do with the balloons like situationally i was just like this is hilarious all you need is a all black box and like around these balloons and like you know we're in a bedroom or in a park or like a bar it's ridiculous i love it <laughs> um i was at the whole thing in the sex club and everyone is a customer at the sex club and bobby is the ringleader that's my bonkers solution go. yeah the whole thing uh Brittany, this has been phenomenal where can people find you on social media if you want them to find you uh everything is just under my name Brittany coleman at insta on twitter all the fun things Love it so much. You guys can find me on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, uh, rate us, subscribe to us, give us a nice little review. If you don't like the podcast and you want to write me a nasty review, that's totally fine, but make it five stars and I will read it and I will even quote it if you want. Uh, otherwise, you know, just tell your friends, make it, make it, make it a thing. Uh, make sure to check in next week when we cover Follies, the, uh, midlife crisis psychotic break of a Fellini musical if ever there was one and to close us out why don't we you know what Donna McKechnie we haven't done Donna original original Kathy original company I will have her close us out great 
Thank you so much for listening, guys, and have a great week. Bye. Take us away, Donna. wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.